0: Everybody welcome back to the channel and if you are tuned into this right now that means you are tuned in to the Dr. Perlman podcast and this is episode 13. Our featured guest today is Kevin Kuhn. He is an exercise therapist, a rehab specialist, a running coach, a trainer, a kinesiologist, and an author of not only hormonal nutrition but also the self-reliant diet. Both of these books I have below in the links in the descriptions. Whether you're seeing this on YouTube, listening, on Spotify or Apple, any platform that you're listening to a clip from this podcast, you're sure to be getting a lot of good, informative, and educational information. He's also a high-level running coach. He has a great history in athletics and sport performance, and he really gives a ton of insight, which he does all the time on his channel, which is Athlete Factors, one word, and you should all check out the Athlete Factors podcast. Which is over hundred episodes in because he has on unbelievably dynamic guests of clinical pearls and relevance which i think we all can agree that we would like to have those clinical pearls and wisdom in the best way to stay healthy rehab ourselves so that we're not spending a ton of time in the clinic the first hour of this podcast really focuses in emphasis on self-care self-maintenance self-rehabilitation running running mechanics and how to optimize performance, whether you are an elite level athlete or just a recreational a few miles a week type runner. The last part of the podcast really focuses on nutrition, getting into the crux of what his books are about and how they can help you, whether it be body composition or athletic performance. And we talk about fat adaptation versus ketosis and whether or not that's a real thing when it comes to sports performance and whether or not that's something you should consider so without further ado everybody this is me and athlete factors kevin coon we are recording this is the dr perlman podcast and in-house today is my good friend and fellow richardson texas healer kevin coon what's up all right so kevin uh recently i was on your podcast and it was a delight. Thank you for letting me speak on your platform and talk about constant chiropractic and all things, uh, health and wellness in general. Now, one of the things I have to go—I I just my audience will want to know because I think about this all the time. Are you actually Matthew Fox? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Only on the weekends. Only on the weekends. That's right. I've, I've been told I look like him a few times, so it's—it's it's not a uh, completely a new thing. But right. I. I don't see it, to be honest with you. I mean, maybe not
0: Party of Five, Matthew Fox, but, but certainly a little bit of Lost slash, uh, I don't remember the name of the movie that you were in with Forrest Whitaker.
1: I don't remember it either.
0: Yeah. And then he recently, even in like the, the mid 2000s, he had this role where he was like an MMA fighter. And I'm like, no and then I saw you, I was like, man, that's you.
1: I'm definitely not an MMA fighter. I, we had to use a body double for that one.
0: <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> it's like he faked his own death, maybe. They recorded it, you come back and this, you know, your 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 name is strange anyways. What your last name, Kuhn, like wh- it's German. German. Mm-hmm. Is like everybody from your family just straight hundred percent German?
1: Uh on my dad's side I think so. My mom's side is uh, Irish and English, I believe. Okay. So Selden and McLaughlin. Ah, Mughaloppa. on the mom's side, yeah. That
0: I'd be would I be right to say that's a nice Irish name? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. At least I get that part. Very, yeah, very Irish. <laughs> yeah, no, my my grandfather, he's from Germany, mm. Lemberger. That's yeah, that's a legit name, man. Yeah. So that's like you know part of me, you know, uh, wants to root still for the Germans in the World Cup. Mm. But uh, you know, it's a lot easier rooting for the Germans than it is the United States. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you, you might just get there sometimes. That's uh, true. But uh, why don't, so let's do this. Let's briefly, maybe briefly, if you want to tell the long version, that's fine too. Tell us about your background and how you became the the kinesiologist, author of Hormonal Nutrition. Everyone, hold on, let me put my phone out of the way here. Hormonal Nutrition and The Self-Reliant Diet. Yes, sir. And offering pearls of wisdom day in and day out on not only your social media feed, but uh, to all the runners that we're lucky to interact with over there in the neighborhood.
1: Yes, sir. And beyond so uh, long or short, let's see, so I'll try to be brief about like my ancient history, and then we'll speed things up as we go, I guess, so I'm originally from Ohio, um my parents were missionaries, so when I was six, they packed us all up, and we moved to the Philippines, and I lived there for uh three years, then we came back to the U.S. for a year, and then we spent another four years there. So a total of seven years. Came back to the U.S. right before I started high school. Um, went to a really, really tiny high school called Cedarville High School, and then crossed the street and went to Cedarville University, like literally right across the street, and uh, studied X phys there. I wanted to be a running coach. That's all I wanted to do It's just work with pro runners and my junior year injured my back and, um, had a little bit of a tough time trying to fix it. And I kind of started to understand that, you know, I probably need to know a little bit about injuries if I'm going to work with athletes because athletes will get injured at some point. So, uh, Came down to Dallas in the summer of 2008 to do an internship at the Cooper Aerobics Center. Loved it. Decided to go visit Baylor. Was like, oh my goodness, I have to go to grad school here. And so I studied ex-phys with an emphasis in strength and conditioning um, for my master's degree and then from there moved to Indianapolis to work as a strength coach and nutrition coach for the Indiana Invaders Professional Running Club where I was working with underdogs trying to make you know a uh a u.s championship or world championship and olympic team things like that so did that for a year and a half and then i was like man this weather in the midwest really sucks so had to get away from those harsh winters and came back to dallas and i've been here since 2012 so and then worked with uh my mentor ambrose coleman um really up until the pandemic started, um, going up to his facility, and I'd help him run youth athletic development programs up there, working with uh, middle school athletes, really elementary, middle school, high school, and even collegiate athletes, as well as their adult uh, clients up there, and then started Athlete Factors, really in 2019, Um, and that's, that's my kinesiology and sport nutrition coaching practice here in Dallas, so...
0: Well, and you know, the part that stuck out to me the most in that was that in the Philippines, um, I think of the jungle and I think of you in Lost uh, in the jungle acting. um, And then, of course, it fits the timeline. So, uh, guys, he might be actually Matthew Fox. I'm just I might end up changing the name of the the show. Uh, Yeah, but
1: believe it or not, (laughs) I actually uh, did act in a Filipino movie. No way. Really? Dead serious. (laughs) Yeah.
0: What what was your role? What did you do?
1: I was a bully and I got to have a mud fight with the main character. And, uh, but then there was, you know, resolution at the end and it's basically like the Filipino version of the story Little Lord Fauntleroy, where like there's this orphan kid and he's actually like royalty, but he doesn't know it. And then, you know, they find him and then, you know, happy ending. Okay. Did you want to be an actor at some point? no, No, but I. I got paid, which is pretty cool. That is cool. Okay. <laughs> All
0: right. So let's, let's talk about a little like – so athletes factors, working with athletes, working with runners, working on the nutrition component. What would you say your specialty is?
1: Um, my specialty. When it comes to athletes, like my, my background is primarily with endurance athletes and specifically with runners. I ran uh, high school, cross-country and track – Um, did, did pretty well in high school, well enough to, to get a little scholarship money and run in college. So got to do that. Um, so my goal has always been to work with runners specifically. So I think my specialty is with endurance athletes in general, but anything that overlaps with running. So triathlon, Mm -hmm. um, runners like marathon ultras, anything to do with running, even sprinting, um, if if you get there on two feet, like that's me. <laughs> gotcha. So,
0: well, what as, what's I don't want to say what are the most common injuries of running, but one thing that's just sticking out, and I might be going a little bit off script here, and if I need to reel back in, you just tell me. Um, I think a lot about people's gait, like even just watching them run. Like back when I was a CrossFit coach, back when I was a you know personal trainer, and even now as a chiropractor. I guess every now and again, when I think it's warranted, I certainly will watch someone's gait, mm-hmm. and I think the spectrum right of of like the gait analysis and how um people just move so different uh is that a big deal? I mean, I would imagine it's a big deal when it comes to like running efficiency. I think that's something I, I want to know more. so please fill me in on that because there are people that like they're running, and it's just like a mess. can't be good <laughs> for their knees, can't be good for their ankles, can't be good for their feet. Sure. Is it a brain thing? Is it a body mechanic thing? I mean, how much success do you have fixing that? What's that like?
1: So early on, like when I was in, in college, um, the, the guy's cross-country coach or the guy's distance coach and the women's distance coach, like not a whole lot of like overlap in, with regards to their coaching philosophy, let's say. And the women's coach, Doctor uh, Dr. King, or Coach King, he had a ton of success with the women's program. And he got to the point where he was like, I'm not going to try to change any of my runner's form. Like, he was just like, if you're a heel striker or a midfoot striker, I don't care. I'm not going to change it. If I try to change it, I end up making you slower. So that was kind of my exposure to like that idea and then i had a biomechanics class with him where he was like here's ideal running form and i'm like okay so what's going on if like if there's an ideal way to run but you're not trying to get your athletes to run that way then what's going on I, that was really confusing for me so uh the more that i study human gait and the more i study or just watch my athletes run and the more i run The more I start, have started to understand that, like, and the more that research has come out. So I just had a uh, PhD on my podcast not too long ago. Her name's uh, Kate Harrison, and she's a biomechanist. And and uh, along with her, and then another uh, runner, Shalea Kip, who's finishing up her PhD. Like Shalea Kip represented the U.S. in the 2012 Olympics in the steeplechase and she's like, yeah, I'm a heel striker. And I'm like, that really, really blew my mind. I couldn't believe that someone at that high of a caliber of runner is like talking about, you know, yeah, I'm a heel striker. It's not that big a deal. And then listening to Kate Harrison talk about, yeah, if you, if you heel strike or if you midfoot strike, there's really not that much of a difference when it comes to the number of injuries that a person will experience but the type of injuries tend to be different, right? So if you're a heel striker, you're probably loading more uh, hard tissues. Like you're gonna have more bone injuries. Mm -hmm. You're gonna have more joint issues. If you're a midfoot striker or um, ball of the foot striker, in other words, if you're not landing on your heels you're probably going to have more soft tissue issues. So it really comes down to not so much whether you're landing on your heel or landing on your midfoot, but where you land relative to your center of mass. Like how far in front of you are you landing? If you're landing way out in front, you're going to have a ton of issues. Mm -hmm. Um, That's like hitting the brakes and the gas pedal at the same time. Like your car is just, it's going to get messed up. So... If you are landing on your heel or if you are landing on your midfoot, whatever the case may be, landing as close to your center of gravity or center of mass as possible is probably going to reduce the amount of braking force that you have to then overcome and absorb. And that's like stress that your body has to it has to handle that, like the shocks on your car. Mm-hmm. Um, so the more you are underneath you, the more you can translate that into an accelerating force, or a propelling force, or a main maintaining force um, to ma- to keep you running. Right. So that's just going to be less wear and tear, whether whether that force is getting absorbed, you know, through the bones or through more of the soft tissues, tendons, ligaments. Or sorry, not ligaments, tendons, muscle, mm-hmm. etc. So uh, the other thing. When it comes to gate, like we like to essentially break things down into quadrants. We talk about front side mechanics, backside mechanics, top side mechanics, and bottom side mechanics. so if we're looking at front side mechanics ideally and like even here there's a lot of uh, nuance there's a lot of nuance there's a lot of of people who uh who are gaining more popularity just because when you look at a picture of, let's say, Usain Bolt or a top level sprinter, if you take a screenshot then you're like, oh my goodness, his front side mechanics, his leg makes the the perfect letter Z where his knee, his knees up, his heel is up underneath him, his toes are dorsif- dorsiflexed or his ankles dorsiflexed. Like, that's beautiful. So, like, we want to reinforce this Z position as much as possible that compresses your leg, turns it into a spring, and then when you make contact with the ground, you come out of that Z, like, boom. You're like, it's like popping off the ground. But when you look at that same, look at those same mechanics in slow motion, like there's a lot of medial and lateral movement. Like if you're just looking at things from the side, then yeah, it just looks like a Z, but there's now a lot of research showing, like, you get a lot more propulsion, you get a lot more acceleration if you're not just working on this, like, perfect front-to-back, get-into-a-Z, get-out-of-a-Z sort of running mechanics that we we tend to, like, water it down and try to teach kids especially, like, oh, just create this letter Z, and then you push off, you know, into the ground, and that's how you get faster. Well, well yeah, that that's true, but there's also the, uh, the, the fact that the bodies work in three dimensions. And so if you're only looking at things from a side view, let's say, and you're just looking at sagittal plane mechanics where they're working up into a Z and then pushing, but you're forgetting like, yeah, I got to get on the front side so I can from the front watch this person run. So I can see their frontal plane mechanics and see how their hips shift and the knees move and there's actually maybe a little bit of a circular pattern with the knees and the ankles as you're going up in and out of a Z. That,
0: that actually just has been sticking out in my mind, that circular pattern, especially people, if I'm not going to just say over pronate, but, but like how that knee will go valgus a little bit. Right. And yeah. in particular women really suffer with this. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, am I, am I catching on what you were kind of throwing out there?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right.
0: Okay. So is that in my opinion, I look at that as being like a disaster. Is it fixable? How do you coach them out of that? Like, cause I just, yeah, watching that, it's like scary. I'm like, <laughs> well, if you can't person right. Who has that, uh, imbalance, mm-hmm. improper mechanics, if they're not aware of it, if they don't know how to do it, that's, I, I mean, yeah. How do we fix that?
1: Yeah. This is where things get a little tough because I see plenty of runners who like at first glance they look awful like it looks so bad. Even professional runners. Like so I'm have you been watching the Olympic trials? No. Oh my goodness. Okay, I'm obsessed. Okay. So that's like all I do (laughs) right now. Like this entire week. Last weekend, there was a little break the past couple days. It's back on as of last night. Finals for the men's steeplechase are tonight. My buddy Daniel McCulski is racing, he's already got the Olympic qualifying time. So if he's top three, he's going to Tokyo. I'm, ju- I'm just, I get fired up about it. The steeplechase was my race, so. Okay. No big deal. I got second at Junior Olympic Nationals when I was in high school. So kind of a big, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not he's a big, big deal. I'm not a
0: big deal. A, he's kind of a big deal. <laughs> and by the way, I mean, for the record, I, ha- I listened to one of the two podcasts you referenced about the endurance running. Um I listened to actually quite a bit of your podcast. You have some amazing guests. I learned more about seasonal allergies in one of your podcasts than I had learned in, you know, 8 years of school. Yeah,
1: Dr. David Stukas. He's he's legit. Yeah. Um so yeah, it when somebody's it, it, here's the tough thing because you can have awful running mechanics and maybe never get injured. And like your your body's biometrics are just They just work right. Like we evolved to run. So some people are going to not look great and still be able to run really well. And then there's other people who like, I was always told like, I have a very beautiful stride. I still have nagging issues all the time. Like, so it's figuring out, is it a volume issue where your body just gets to a certain point? It's like, Hey, I'm not conditioned to deal with this amount of load. So things are going to start breaking down. Is that the issue or is it the way that you're running is actually causing problems? So because the body is going to do what it assumes is the most efficient, like we, uh, the body doesn't want to waste energy. It doesn't want to, it doesn't want to waste anything. So if you're moving a certain way, it's because your nervous system has programmed it or has calibrated the rest of your body to do something a certain way. So when someone comes to me in pain, typically I'll do a table assessment where it's just, it's all passive range of motion. I just want to see where their body's holding tension. From there, we transition into some movements where I want to see how they squat. I want to see how they split squat, how they do a single leg squat. And then from there, I want to see how they run. And if they're If they're passively holding tension, that's going to then show up when they actively move, and then that will probably show up when I watch them run. And so if there's this overlap between where they're having pain or, or where they're having an issue and how they run, then I know, like, okay, this is where we need to make a change. But for the most part, like pronation and supination like you want that as a normal part of of walking gait of running mm. um, of movement like so one thing that my mentor told me early on was if the body can do it it should probably be trained so like if the if the foot pronates and supinates like you shouldn't try to avoid pronation you should just train it appropriately so I think that's one of those things that can be really tough and confusing. Like how much of this do I fix? Because if you, if you do too much, then you're at risk of reducing performance. But if you don't do enough, then do you get them out of pain? So, and
0: I mean, you know, it's kind of, well, no, it's a little too much to say like overcorrect and affecting performance. I just think of what you just had mentioned or touched upon was if you overcorrect something, right? It's like the medicine becomes thy poison. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like we're almost two in the same. Um, the thing that I'm more concerned about, though, is is like that valgus knee and the people that are weak and their neuro- or sorry, their neurology is, is just like what's doing it. So I want to know if you can train them out of that or in most cases people that are that much of a flight risk, if you will, with that, again, valgus knee, foot just overpronating, uh, ankle and heel just winging out in their gait and mm-hmm. usually those same people will do some awkward stuff with their arms yeah and I'm wondering if that's something that you can break them out of does that take like 10,000 hours of work or is it really um you modify it just slightly enough like to get them out of pain and then it would I guess it would depend on how elite they want to be really it's probably a unique situation
1: sure so typically what happens is when someone, c- comes in and like if they if they come to see me they're not usually saying hey i'm here to just get better it's usually like hey my knee hurts and i have a 10k in six weeks or i have a marathon in seven days like it's always like last minute i'm like "Ah, okay whatever (laughs) let's see what we can do so if if there is excessive knee valgus it's typically not, it's not because the body is doing something wrong per se. Perhaps it's excessive tension in their adductors paired up with a weakness in the hip abductors. So it's usually glute max and glute medius. So we can make changes to that in real time. So what I have to do is, uh, and the the picture that you saw where I was at run on this past weekend where I was digging into um, my new friend Kim, Mm -hmm. her adductors, like her adductors were super locked up and her abductors were turned off. So the first step that in the recipe to fixing her is going to be digging into those adductors to get them to quiet down because they're trying to pull the knees in. And the adductors tend to get recruited as the hip flexors fatigue. So when you're running, especially longer runs, your hip flexors are going to get really fatigued. They're going to get really tired. And so as they fatigue, uh, the body recruits the adductors. So they start working in because they they can do some of the same movement. They can assist in pulling the leg forward. So... What that does is that tends to quiet down gluteus medius. So after digging into the adductors and stretching them out and trying to return optimal length, then we just start training the gluteus medius, turning that thing on. Mm -hmm. And then once adductors are quieted down, abductors are turned on, then I just train the leg in proper gait. So I'd work on some band Z poles where I've got a band around their, they're they're laying flat on their back. I've got a mini band around their arches and they're pulling their leg up into that knee, up heel up toe up into creating that letter Z. Mm -hmm. And then I'd flip them over and put them in bird dog position. So hands and knees, one knee is going to be on a yoga block and then they're kicking against that band out of that z position so i'm training them to get into that z position and then we train to get out of that z position and that's all open chain exercise so we slowly build basically from turning off what's too active and then turning on what's not active enough and then open chain exercise and then closed chain exercise and then run and in one session we can do that no pain. Wow. Usually, I was gonna say it's like,
0: you get, and I hope you're charging enough money. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was just told uh, two weeks ago by one of my clients that I've seen on and off for three or four years now. She, it was so funny. She goes, "Kevin, you uh-huh. don't charge enough." And I was like, "What? Like, I just... What do you mean?" She goes, "Well, like, I go to a masseuse, and like every couple years, you know, their prices go up, and like." your prices need to go up okay all right i got to i gotta bump my prices up so
0: yeah like you you segued into what my next question was going to be about the whole um turning off a muscle or like you know quieting down right where something's overactive Mm -hmm. and then actually activating in this case the ab doctors or the glute med or the gluteus maximus and you literally gave so if, if you students who are tuned in right now or other people that are in practice that are missing elements of this like he just gave you
1: this is the recipe.
0: Platinum. Yeah. <laughs> this is beyond gold. Yeah. No, that that's that's cool. And A, I know it works because I do this now very often. I try to do I always say the reason you have to see a guy like you, a guy like me, or whoever's gonna do the work like this is because you can't actively do it to yourself. You have to have the muscle completely passive and churned off where somebody can actually lengthen what needs to be lengthened. They need to be able to actually come go in and and get through those levels of proprioception, um, nociception, proprioception, Mm -hmm. two different complete things, as we know. I always talk about the inhibition of nociception, the pain fibers, Mm -hmm. to be able to actually quiet that down. They could probably activate it on some level on their own, but I mean, even with a Theragun, to be able to like stimulate and activate that way and then have somebody else, again, um, against resistance, right? To activate those muscles but yes pure platinum really it, you more than answered the question that I was going to go into on that level and one of the things I want to know right so I am a recreational runner mm-hmm. I wish I wish I run, ran more um, so now this is me being selfish a, a problem that I continue to encounter all the time is 48 hours in or two days into my run so I've done two three mile runs let's say uh, my back is completely fatigued at the end I'm susceptible to injury, not just because I'm fatigued, but because of some underlining mechanism. Like my back just doesn't, can't take it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have about three or four patients who are in the similar realm. They come in, we you know adjust their fifth lumbar, they're better for a couple of days. They go back, whatever. They go running a few more days, they come back, they're in, they're in trouble. Mm-hmm. A, what do you think that is with that like back being so fatigued, so taxed, completely associated with exercise, and um, maybe something about like is there an actual a thing called running tight, like? being like over braced in the core with that anterior pelvic tilt and how it just affects the whole chain. Yes. So
1: that's without being able to put you on my table and assess you like nine times out of 10, when in, when a distance runner comes to me, they have excessively tight hip flexors. They have excessively tight lumbar spine and it's, it's that anterior pelvic tilt. So, um, that was my issue. Like when I injured my back, like it wasn't until later that I realized like, Oh, I'm stuck in this, in this pelvic tilt position. Like my, you know, sometimes it's referred to as club booty where like when, when you're dancing in a club and you're just pushing that thing out, you know, I don't know. I never done that. So I, I can't, you know, I can't confirm. Uh-huh. However, uh, yeah. Like, They talk about, you know, the pelvis is like a bowl and, you know, it can, it can tilt forward. It can tilt back. And depending on which muscles are being used more often, like, again, the body wants to be as efficient as possible. So an anterior pelvic tilt for runners, in my opinion, is an adaptation to make you more efficient at running. So. The only issue is you've got to figure out at what point is it no longer an adaptation that's helping. And, and now it's crossed that line and now it's, it's causing problems. So Because it's weird. The body tends to be really good at like, all right, if this is what we're doing, I'm, gonna, I'm going to adapt to, to be more efficient at it. But sometimes there's, there's this line where it's like, okay, right. the body needs a little help now. I always talk about the principle of diminishing returns and I think it's like applicable
0: with everything in life. But what's amazing is how fast that principle of diminishing return can happen. Mm. I.e. Say you have a pre-existing like lumbar disc problem and then you're trying to, you know, do some exercise and you're in a hollow rock position or a hollow hold or you're doing excessive sit-ups. Mm. That, that principle of diminishing return is like five minutes max or like, you know, six to 10 reps and all of a sudden you're in trouble. Another thing might be, I'm going to ride my bike, you know, 30 miles and I'm going to run 15 miles or whatever it might be. And all of a sudden you could buy like a month out of that where you're getting in better shape. Your VO2 max, you know, it mm-hmm. becomes, a, you know, increase in number and you're becoming a more elite athlete and all of a sudden you just plateau like crazy and then begin to diminish. Yes. And there's this this
1: amazing realm. Same thing in diet, which we're going to talk about. But yeah. No, I I think you're right. There's. There's certain times where the body just needs uh, needs a little help. It needs needs a little adjustment. So there's plenty of of examples of specifically with sprinters who tend to have to deal with more. Well, you're generating more force. You're generating more contact ground contact force if you're sprinting versus if you're you know just just going out for a jog or going out for a run. So I know of high level sprinters who like their body has adapted to have this anterior pelvic tilt so that they can get into these positions more efficiently and get out of them decently efficiently. But, um, it can get to the point where if you're pairing up what you're doing on the track with maybe too much exercise in the weight room, that's not getting you out of that pelvic tilt then you're just reinforcing this anterior pelvic tilt. And then maybe you go home and you're going to drive home. So now you're sitting in your car driving home and then you get home and you sit on the couch. And so you're just reinforcing this anterior pelvic tilt. And that's where you can get to the point where it's like, okay, like the body's like, all right, we've had enough red flag, Mm -hmm. send the pain signal, let the brain know something's wrong here. So it's not so much that the, The pelvic tilt is a bad thing. It's just, maybe it's excessive. Maybe you're in that position too long. So training to get out of that pelvic tilt, spending a lot of time in a posterior pelvic tilt, uh, I think is like, that's what fixed me. Mm -hmm. I was excessively anterior, started training a lot more where I was just focusing on my pelvic position getting out of that anterior tilt, learning how to use my diaphragm and breathe correctly, and actually using my glutes. Um, yeah, that took care of it. So that's that's essentially, it's following that same recipe where if the hip flexors are tight, turn them off. Glutes are, are not firing, turn them on, get them working. Retrain, you know, those uh, those whatever movement patterns are being used in the sport and then replicate it and then if that doesn't work then you just go back a step and say okay well I know we turned on the right things and we turned off the right things but maybe this specific exercise isn't translating enough to on the field play or to on what you're doing on the road when you're running so let's try a different exercise and we'll see if that works
0: you know, I, I I almost feel bad sometimes asking for like a million dollar cue. I always refer to it as a million dollar cue. Mm. I'm actually just going to give it away right now on my podcast for my million dollar cue. And this is when I was a CrossFit coach. And even now when I watch people squat, it's butt back on the way up. Mm. Butt back on the way up to me fixes people's squats. Whatever, you know, bottom line, it, it, there, buddy, who's listening to this, we just fixed your squat. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. I don't have a Patreon, but I should. (laughs) Um, So what I want to know, what's a million-dollar cue, actually, for people to do on their own to activate their glutes? I didn't even think of it until just now, but is there one?
1: That's a tough one. Um, The only reason I'm a a little hesitant there is because I have have a few clients who I I (laughs) – I'm thinking of one specifically. I hope he doesn't listen to this because he'll know I'm talking about him. When we're doing certain exercises, he cannot fire his glutes to save his life. Like certain exercises is totally fine. And like giving him a cue for certain exercises, like doesn't happen. Just doesn't work. So and like he knows and he's like, I'm trying. And I'm like, I know, man, like, let's do something different so that we can get those glutes to fire. So sometimes it's not always necessarily the cue. Sometimes it's, uh, instead of trying to, trying to give a cue, I'll just regress. So I find that a lot of times the less coaching I have to do, the more success I'll have with the client just because I may only see them like at, at most three times a week. So most of my clients I'll see once or twice a week. Mm-hmm. I've got some clients I only see once a month or only when they're only when they're hurting, they'll just come in. Hey, you know, give me a tune up, yeah. you know, I'll call you in three months. Yeah. All right, whatever. So if I don't have to cue them or I don't have to tell them, Hey, like think about this, if I can regress it. So I'm just like, Hey, do this exercise. Um, that tends to be a little bit better, but, um, um, there's, there's some classics in the, in the glute queuing, uh, category. I've heard crack the nut. Think about, you know, <laughs> putting the, putting the nut between your cheeks, crack that nut. Uh, when I was in grad school, we watched this really, really old video about Olympic lifting and, uh, like we were all cracking up about it. Cause like, it was, I mean, it was like VHS tape, like the lines, lines and everything. Yeah. Oh, it was so bad. And this guy is like queuing uh, – I have no idea why but he's queuing these kids and he's saying don't lose your money. And he was like explaining that like like if you <laughs>
0: – I'm just putting my hand in my left pocket. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, uh,
1: how much can we get into on this podcast? Is this uh- – <laughs>
0: You can say whatever. We can say fuck. We can say asshole. We could we could do whatever we want. We can talk about sex and Cardi B. I don't know.
1: <laughs> this guy was telling kids to pretend they had like a dollar bill between their cheeks and to not lose their money. And I was like, "Why are you telling kids this? Like, this sounds so bad." <laughs> but that was the cue that he
0: liked to use. So he was raising little uh, little exotic dancers. Yes, apparently. that's yeah. what I thought. I was that's, like,
1: mm, "Bro, oh yeah, yeah, that's odd." Just wait till 2020 and, and you can't and, do that and, anymore. And, and
0: honestly, here I thought you were just going to say like, Hey, glute bridge, like the best way to do it is to glute bridge. And mm. I was like, say, hey, yeah, okay. I was right. But no, <laughs> I was like, there's gotta be more. How do you, how do you, how do you wake up those glutes?
1: Yeah. So a lot of it is, is I start out teaching my client and this is super annoying for people. Um, a 10 second plank and okay. people are like, okay, I can plank for two minutes. And I'm like, that's awesome. I bet you can't plank like this for two minutes. Let's see if you can do it for 10 seconds. So it's like the, uh, the hard style of, um, or long lever plank. Sometimes it's called where, but like, I don't even necessarily put my client in where they're at at an excessively long lever. I just put them in a, in a plank position, right? So elbows are right under their shoulders. Make sure they've got as neutral of a spine as possible. Sometimes I'll put a dowel there just to make sure we're we're close. And I'm not like, it has to be perfect, you know, lumbar curve, perfect cervical curve, perfect thoracic curve. Like, mm. let's make it look nice. Do you have decent looking posture? Perfect. From there, go into as much of a posterior pelvic tilt as possible. So you're just squeezing your glutes as hard as you can. And most people can do that for like a second and then they relax. And so you've got to like... like No, no, no. Don't just squeeze and then let go. Like When you flex your muscles in front of a mirror, like when you're checking out your biceps, checking out your pecs in front of a mirror, whatever, you're not just flexing and then relaxing. So it's like the same thing. You've got to squeeze your glutes as hard as you can, squeeze your abs as hard as you can, and now you're in a full posterior pelvic tilt. You're getting that neurological activation through all those glute fibers. And then think about tucking your elbows down to your toes and think about pulling your toes up to your elbows. And that's going to engage even more of your of your core, of your torso. I, I hate saying core. Mm-hmm. Everybody, oh, I train my core. I don't know what that means, y'all. Um, I do, but it's just it's one of those funny things. So doing that where you're squeezing your glutes as hard as you can, you're squeezing your abs as hard as you can, you're actually engaging the rest of your upper body your lats are getting worked cuz you're you're thinking about pulling down your quads are getting worked a ton because now you're f- trying to pull your toes up like basically everything every muscle in your body is working not every muscle but everything's working if you can maintain that where you're actively flexing it everything as hard as you can like you should only be able to maintain that for 10 seconds cuz if you can go harder than that or if you can go longer than that, then by definition, it's not max effort. Mm-hmm. So you're you're turning a plank into a max effort exercise, and you shouldn't be able to do that very long. So I start with that, and like that gets the glutes fired up big time. Okay, very cool. Now, and it's exhausting.
0: Yeah, no, it sounds exhausting. I'm, I'm to be honest, I can't wait to try it <laughs> when I get home because I've got to do something that's more sustainable. Like I've I've been experimenting with so many things to kind of give me this longevity Mm -hmm. that I so desire to have in terms of being able to recover from what I deem like a very simple run, Mm -hmm. which will kind of segue into something else in a second. But uh, I really liked, I've been working with this guy, Damon Patterson, over in Mesquite, actually has multiple gyms. And we were doing something called RPR, Mm -hmm. um, something uh, proprioceptive reset, I believe. But we were using a lot of like body touch stimulation to kind of activate muscles. Uh, but also he was taking me through, and I, I'm sure he knows this, the the magic that was this um progressive, it was progressing through like my limited range of motion, like passively stretching me through where I was hesitant to go mm-hmm. where I couldn't actively do myself mm-hmm. and him being able to spot me like through where I couldn't per se go into sustained flexion actively, mm-hmm. but him being able to passively pull me through there and then being able to, uh, have my aductor summary, my abductors turn on by doing like abduction of the leg with the toe turned in to stimulate the glutes. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like magical and it, and it had quite um, a, a long effect. Mm-hmm. And the only thing I can say is that not only did I not really keep up on it uh, in the last, you know, couple of months because I like re aggravated my back or whatever. And it, and it very well could be the answer, but I'm always looking for something active, right. That I can just do on my own. Mm-hmm. And now that I've, I've, I've listened and I can visualize everything you talked about in that plank position. And I'm going to go ahead and try to apply that before and after my runs, especially this weekend that I'm feeling good again. You I want to get out there. Yeah. Which, um, <clears throat> Okay. If someone begins to run and they're like, I'm going to go out and do a two-miler because maybe they used to be trained or whatever, like me, right? I can go out and easily do two to three miles, but still I'm too fatigued. Mm -hmm. Have I broken any, like, running progression laws, especially for recreational runners? Am am I starting too hard by that?
1: That's a – Or is (laughs) (laughs) – Depends on who you ask. Yeah. Uh, If – when it comes down to it, like, it's so easy – for like one part of my brain is like there here's a logical progression run 3 to 5 minutes day 1 next day run 3 to 5 minutes next day run 3 to 5 minutes do that for a week the following week run 5 to 8 minutes and and do it that way like yeah. i know people so there's this guy Nick Willis he was two time Olympic medalist. The only man who's run 19 consecutive years of sub 4 minute miles. The dude's phenomenal. From New Zealand, ran at University of Michigan. Anyway, I'm jealous. Yeah, he's super <laughs> legit. He's phenomenal. He's a great guy. Anyway, he when he would get injured, his return to running was a 10 week build. And he would run one mile every day the first week. And then he would run two miles every day the second week. So he'd go from seven miles to 14 miles to 21 miles. Like every week, he would just add a mile every day until he got to 10 weeks where he's, or week 10. Yeah, so now he's running 70 miles. So that was his return. So, I don't know. Like the easy answer is everyone's different. It just depends. Yeah. But which is
0: probably the which is
1: probably the right answer. Yeah. yeah. So it the way that I look at it is the way that I didn't do it when I was in high school, which was just how far do I feel like running today? Okay, I'll just run that far. Like that's probably not the best way to look at long-term maintenance or being able to run long-term what's probably best is to set up some sort of systematic program where you're not running further than what you've decided beforehand so that you can then match that or slightly exceed that the following week so and when it comes to like total weekly mileage like that progression where willis was going from seven miles to 14 miles to 21 miles, like in building that way, that's not normal. Like don't do that. (laughs) He is super high caliber, best of the best runners. Like he could accumulate that much volume that fast and that change in volume. So like, uh, um, Jack Daniels, who's, you know, famous running coach and famous exercise physiologist doesn't, I believe that he says don't quote me on this. I'm sorry if I get it wrong, but basically your weekly mileage should essentially be the same for a couple weeks before you take a jump up. Right? So if you're running, if you're shooting for 30 miles in a week, like for, for some person like that may, that might not be very much. That's about how much mileage I do every week right now. I shoot for about 30 and it's wearing me down right now. like, Earlier today, I was talking with one of my clients and I'm like, dude, all of this, I just want to nap more. I just want to sleep longer. And like, I can't, so I've got to figure out, okay, is this actually sustainable? I thought 30 to 35 miles a week was going to be easy to maintain. And now I've got to reevaluate. Okay. Am I prioritizing my sleep and my rest and my recovery? And am I fueling appropriately? So that I can maintain 30 miles a week. So I'm getting off on a little bit of a yeah. tangent there. But um all that to say, if you think about things long term, what do you want to be doing six months from now, a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now? If you if you want to be running, you know, three, four times a week in 10 years, then you probably shouldn't go crazy with how much you're adjusting your running. And if it's if 2 to 3 days consecutively is causing a lot of issues, then maybe cut your volume in half, see how you feel, and then maybe stay there. Like a lot of aerobic improvements come from just repeat exposure to the same stress. You don't always have to increase your speed. You don't have to increase your volume and mileage. You don't have to increase your running duration. Like, this is a hard lesson for me. And I am, like, very guilty of not taking my own advice here because, like, well, I did 30 miles last week. I should do 35 miles this week. Like, no, no, no. Do the same thing. And I'm going to get better. Like... You don't have to always, you know, like it's the exact same thing when you see guys in the weight room loading, you know, a couple extra two and a half pounders on each side because they're like, well, I did, you know, 225 last week, so I'm going to do, you know, 230 this week. Like maybe if you just did the the same weight last week, but you do it a little better, maybe you'll still get stronger and you're not going to put yourself like that, the, the Temptation is to always increase intensity. Like, that's not, that's rarely the best long term solution.
0: Gotcha.
1: A long winded answer.
0: No, no. (laughs) And and, and I just think back of like, uh, uh, Will Rich Roll podcast, which I listened to a ton, um, a couple of years back. I mean, that's when I like really started to conceptualize podcasting in general, was talking about staying in zone one. And how humbling it is. Mm -hmm. And even when you think you're ready to move forward, to like stay, you know, on that lower level of volume or load or intensity or duration. Mm -hmm. And I know for a fact I'm guilty of that, much like you alluded to, with your own training. And, yeah. And that's, it could literally be the principle of diminishing return. It's like my back erector muscles that are just QLs and whatever else. They're just like, stop, Yoni, stop. Like, you've done too much too fast. Mm -hmm. And we gave you a day out of it. And you go to work and bend over all day and, you know, adjust people mm-hmm. and, and go ahead. Let's, let's try it again. And it's like, no, F you. Now we're <laughs> going to send that signal, like
1: shut it down. Yeah. It's just yeah. threshold. It, it reached a level where it's like, I can't deal with that amount of stress anymore. Yeah. All right. Now let's
0: change gears because we're about an hour in and now we're really going to get into the meat and potatoes. And everybody knows
1: all <laughs> meat and potatoes,
0: me and my food. <laughs> um, all right. So look. Briefly tell us, The Self-Reliant Diet, that's your first book? Uh, that's my second book. Oh, I ruined it all. It's, it's all, all good. good. The Hormonal Nutrition is your yes. first novel. Yes. And The novel. Self-Reliant Diet. <laughs> <laughs> to, let's tell the audience, what exactly can they expect?
1: What, are the, what is this all about? Gotcha. So immediately out of grad school, I can't say immediately. Uh, for, the, for the first year or two out of grad school, I was still very much in like – academic mode where I was reading a ton of, of journals and a ton of peer review articles and, um, still, still trying to maintain one foot in academia because my plan was to go back and get my PhD. And so to help stay sharp with my writing, um, I decided, you know what, I need to, I need to do something so that when I do go back to school, I'm not like, two years out of like writing practice um like it's just so much a part of of academia yeah. you've got to be able to write so i was here in dallas i basically just moved back here and i had quite a bit of free time i didn't have a full load with work so I was like all right how can i do something that's actually going to be beneficial to me and beneficial to, you know, to society in general, perhaps, or to my clients specifically. So I wasn't really at the point where I was comfortable coaching a client on how to change body composition. Like I didn't know what to coach a person. I knew like, I knew the concepts, but I didn't know how to, to program someone diet or to program their calories and macros i knew how to calculate this stuff but i didn't know how to like put it all into practice so i was like okay if i can't provide that level of service what can i do for my clients and so a lot of them didn't even want to track they didn't they didn't care about their calorie needs so i was like okay well I know that your hormones have a very profound effect on your metabolic rate. So I was like, okay. If I can compile all of this data on what I consider the most metabolically influential hormones, like maybe there's some actual useful information here. So, hormonal nutrition is like 0% my original work. I didn't I didn't do any research None of it is based off my experience. It's just looking at how does insulin work? How does leptin work? How does ghrelin work? How does glucagon work? How does uh, CCK, PYY, GLP-1, testosterone, growth hormone, cortisol, uh, IGF-1, I think that's about all of them... Um, What do they do in the body? What is their functional purpose? Um, How do they relate to whether you're hungry or not or whether you're full or not? How do they relate to um, maintaining muscle mass or like cortisol, decreasing muscle mass sometimes? So what do they do? What do you need to know about it? Um, And then how can specific foods that you eat at specific times Affect those specific hormones? How can specific exercises affect those hormones? So the idea is your hormones are like driving your car and you're in the passenger seat. And if you don't know anything about them and you don't know that if you eat, you know, if you eat protein at a specific time, you're going to have a more profound effect on your satiation hormones so that you. It takes longer to digest. So you're gonna feel fuller longer. So if your goal is to lose weight and you're hungry all the time, if you eat a high protein, high fat meal, that takes a longer time to digest. And so you're gonna feel fuller longer. You're gonna feel satiated. So that's going to help. If you eat a super high carbohydrate meal, you're probably like digesting carbohydrates is very fast. So you're probably gonna be, your stomach's gonna send the signal hey, we're empty about an hour after you eat a high-carbohydrate meal. So if your goal is to lose weight and you're eating a ton of carbs, you're probably going to feel hungry more often. So it's things like that. So I tried to break it down into as practical chunks as possible. And if you check the the very end of every chapter, it's like, hey, here's the bullet points. If you don't want to read any of this because it's just compilations of research, just here's the bullet points. Do this, do this, do this. To increase insulin sensitivity, you know, have a tablespoon of apple cider vinegar before a high-carbohydrate meal. To improve testosterone production, do this and this and this. To improve growth hormone or mechano-growth factor or whatever the case may be. So that's hormonal nutrition. It's yep. allowing you to get take back the driver's seat and manipulate your hormones a little bit. Okay. So, that's that one. The self-reliant diet is in my opinion a much better book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just because uh you can follow all the advice in the hormonal nutrition, but if you're in a calorie surplus and you're trying to lose weight, sorry. Like that's kind of important. You need to know you need to know what your budget is. You need to know how many calories you need in order to make any type of change that you're looking for. So if your goal, pardon me, those bubbles in that Topo Chico, oh, yeah. uh, if you are in, if your goal is to increase your muscle mass and increase weight, but you're in a calorie deficit, it's not going to happen, right? So the analogy that I use is if you want to save up for a trip to Disney World, but you're in debt, you're not going to Disney World, right? So if your goal is to elicit a specific physiological adaptation to training, and maybe that's increased strength or power or speed, but you're in a huge calorie deficit, your body's like, okay, so we need 4,000 calories a day, and you're giving us 2,000 calories. So do you want this 2,000 calories to go to your immune system um, do you want it to go to your brain to keep your like brain working because that's kind of important? It's like running everything. Uh, do you want it to go to making sure that your heart continues to pump? Um, where do you want this money to go to? Money like because calories are the body's currency. Um, so the self-reliant diet is is my attempt to teach people how to calculate their caloric need and. We've got a ton of data, a ton of research on these calorie prediction equations. Um, it'd be nice if you could just do direct calimer- calorimetry, but like for the human body, you can't do that. So, um, what we can do is we can use these equations, and they're estimates, but they're extremely accurate. Um, and from there, you can calculate how much, how many calories you need within a certain range and then you can there's always individual variability so you make adjustments based off of that but um, from there you know what your budget is and then after you know your budget then you can determine what is the appropriate breakdown of the macronutrients for you so I like my clients to hit a gram of protein per pound of body weight per day some people don't they, they just can't do that On a consistent basis so instead of trying to set someone up for failure and say hey you weigh 150 pounds you need to hit 150 grams of protein every day if they can only come in at 120 and every day I'm like you are 30 grams under budget like this is bad instead of like making somebody feel bad for that we just make the adjustment okay 120 grams is way better than what you were doing when you weren't tracking which was probably 70 grams so this is still a win. As we go forward, maybe we try to increase that a little bit to 130 and then eventually to 140 or whatever the case may be. Uh, protein, I just consider the second most important priority. So after your calories, after your budget, hitting protein, if you want to adapt to your training, if you want to repair, if you want to recover, like you need those amino acids. After that, we calculate your fat need all of pretty much all of those hormones that we talked about in hormonal nutrition, not all of them, but the sex-based hormones. So testosterone, uh, cortisol, estrogen, things like that. Those are all built on a cholesterol backbone without fat in your diet. Like your hormones just can't really do their job correctly. So, um, not only is fat super important as a source of energy, it's also like you have to have it for hormonal health. So, uh, I like between like a starting out point, like 25 to 30% of your total calories come in, coming from fat. Um, I don't like low fat diets. Like they tend to, I think do much more long-term harm than they do good. Even if they do help you lose weight, um, at what cost? Well, at the cost of hormonal health, which down the road is going to be yeah. bad, so, and then with whatever whatever is left in your budget, it's all carbohydrate. And then for most athletes, like that's a really good setup. Uh, but then for some athletes, you know, they're like, "Hey, I don't, I don't want all these carbs. Let's shift it to fat." I'm like, "Perfect. Hit your budget. Hit your protein goal. Have as much fat as you want." And then other clients are like, "Hey, you know, I feel like I." I do better with a higher concentration of carbohydrates. I'm like, all right, that's fine. You just can't go below this level of fat. Like, this is the bottom line. You have to have this. So, that's essentially the self reliant diet. It's just to teach you how to do that, it teaches you how to track, it teaches you how to audit so that you know you're staying on track. It shows you how to set up a calorie deficit if you want to lose, lose weight or improve your body comp by reducing body fat. It shows you how to improve your body composition by increasing lean tissue mass and how to set up a calorie surplus and all of that. And the most important part, in my opinion, is living at maintenance. Like that's where you're going to make the most significant changes in body composition. You're not going to feel like you're dieting. You still get to eat all the things that you want and like, and nothing's off limits. So living at maintenance, in my opinion, like that's the key to to success, especially long-term success. You don't want to be you can't be in a calorie deficit forever. So live at maintenance. Enjoy life. Enjoy mm-hmm. what you're eating.
0: That's like that's your slogan. That's, that's like it. one of your catchphrases. Live at maintenance. Caloric, man. Day, caloric maintenance. That's yeah. it, dude. That's <clears throat> that's the key. Now I've brought this up in the past, but I really, really want to dive in uh deeper with you. So you talked about like body composition. Mm-hmm. And 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 I always look at like when I think of Caloric maintenance or I think of you know, uh, and it's benedict. What's the equation? Benedict uh, Harris benedict Harris benedict equation Mm -hmm. Like I look at that especially when I'm training. It's like, okay, how am I gonna get like 3,400 calories in today or whatever kind of thing? Um, Body composition to me means like a very strict strategic diet that leaves out a lot of foods Yet when I think of performance, I think of okay, if I need chips crackers and donuts. I'm going to need chips, crackers, and donuts. Mm-hmm. Now, at the same time, I can't see how that would ever give someone the body composition maybe that, that they desire. So <laughs> am I right to think that? Is is it really go into like
1: just how specific your training and what your macros are? So if at the end of the day, if your body needs 4,000 calories mm-hmm. and you're getting – 80 plus percent of that from high quality sources of food then in general if going you know 10 to 20% from stuff that most people would consider unhealthy food i still think you're winning okay um, if you're getting all of your calories from chips and and snack food like crackers and cupcakes and you're not going to feel great. You can still lose weight doing that. You can be in a depth, like there's quite a few anecdotal, uh, like pilot studies or anecdotal, you know, accounts of people who, uh, there was an exercise physiologist who went on a Twinkie diet and he only ate Twinkies, did his blood work beforehand and then for 30 days was in a calorie deficit, but all he ate were Twinkies. And then did blood work at the end. And because he was in a calorie deficit, his blood work was better. Like he lost weight and it was like 30 days maybe. Like it was a short-term study. But what is what is important to note is that you don't – like the whole idea, in my opinion, the whole idea of eating clean is kind of uh, – that can be a huge – hurdle for some people because they can't necessarily maintain long-term consistency if all they do is eat quote-unquote clean foods. So if you can maintain your calorie goal by eating some chocolate every once in a while, like do it, enjoy it, but just know that salty foods sweet foods, especially when it's processed. We call these hyper-palatable foods where it it's hard to eat 10 chips, and that usually is a serving. Like, like oh, I'm going to eat some chips, and then if you don't count them out, then okay, now you're... It's going to be hard to track because you're just eating a bag of chips, right? So, things like that tend to make it more difficult, but you can... Lane Norton and Sohee Lee are both like uh, a lot of what I understand about, uh, macro counting. If it fits your macros, determining your caloric need comes from them. And both of them, like Lane Norton got, he was a pro natural bodybuilder and a professional power lifter. And he was winning physique competitions or bodybuilding competitions and eating ice cream every night. So He Lee got her pro card and to prove that you can do it this way, she had a Snickers bar every single day, 30 days leading up to the show that she then won and got her pro card. So you can, if you're very, very strict with, okay, this is the amount of calories I need. This is how many I'm going to eat. A little bit can come from You know, these, quote unquote, not perfect sources maybe, but it allows you to be perfect with your consistency. Like, that's how you're going to win. So.
0: It's like, just don't lose your freaking mind. Exactly. While you're there. Yeah. And those hyper-palatable foods make it very difficult. And then it's just about like being honest with ourselves before we say like, yeah, that didn't work. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Yeah, this counting calories doesn't work. Well, No, it does work. Like we have a ton of data on it, like tons and tons of, of, of like clinical studies where these are extremely controlled diets. We know that if you put a person in this amount of a calorie deficit, they're going to lose weight. If you put them in this amount of a calorie surplus, they're going to gain weight. Like we know this for a fact. This is, this is as much as people like to debate it on social media, like when you look at all of the evidence, it's like, you can't refute it. Like it's, this is, this is how the body works. So, but a lot of people are like, Oh, well it's all hormones. Like, Oh, it's artificial sweeteners. It's like, "Mm, not really like a little bit of these things is okay. The issue is when you say, Oh, I'm just going to have a little bit. And then you don't control it. Mm -hmm. And then you, you're 500 calories over your goal, but you think you're in a hundred calorie deficit. Like no, you like you're six hundred calories over what you think you are because you think you're under, and you're you know you're five over, so it's yeah, it's things like that, but it requires a lot of attention, sometimes people don't wanna pay attention
0: <laughs> now do you do you think there's like a, a spectrum of like autoimmune type reactions, so somebody like me, for example, like I just do horrible with grains, like just horrible, 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 mm-hmm. uh it's really you know. Uh, if I'm being honest with myself, yeah, obviously, like, if I'm eating a whole bunch of combinations of bad food or I'm just, like, starving because maybe I am exercising a bunch and I am trying to put away all those calories, yes, these combinations of foods and, yes, eating whatever in excess is obviously going to be what bothers me. But, like, if I was to go have just a bowl of quinoa with some vegetables right now, like, my I would be destroyed. Like, my mm. I couldn't handle it. If I have, uh, like, you know, uh, some wheat bread or something, like, forget about it. Like, I'm done. So... I always think of like health on a spectrum. I hate putting something as like, Oh, well that's Hashimoto's and that's uh, ankylosing spondylitis or whatever. But Mm -hmm. we know, we know the science exists. We know the, um, uh, the the cytokine and the interleukin, you know, these um, inflammatory markers. Yes. So are there people, I almost forgot where I was going with this, but like this, like autoimmune type reaction that, that lives on a spectrum are, is there a way, I guess there's just people that just need to leave those things out, period. And, I mean, I may have overcomplicated such a simple question to ask.
1: No, I, I, this is where it gets a little tricky for me because this is, this is like beyond my scope of practice as a sport nutritionist. Like this is getting into like clinical dietetics Mm -hmm. and I am not a dietitian. Okay. So, um, but like from what I understand, like you're exactly right. There's certain things like celiacs, for example, certain people have, Full-blown celiacs, and other people are uh, gluten intolerant, and there's variations between those two, and those are not necessarily the same thing. You can not respond well to things that contain gluten, but never be diagnosed with celiac disease. So, um, yeah, it's it's important to find things that maybe are inflammatory triggers for you, or things that. You may, it may not even be anything other than like, I just don't feel as good eating this food. And like, I think it's completely okay to just say, you know what? I don't feel good when I eat this. I'm just going to remove it from my diet. And as long as it's not like, as long as you're still able to get a variety of nutrient dense foods elsewhere, then like go for it. We've got so much variety when it comes to food. I think it's probably okay. If you're like "Mm." grains, like, what are you missing out from your diet? If you remove grains wholesale, I don't think you're missing out on, on a whole lot. Like you can, you can get a lot of those nutrients elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So if you're like removing, you know, an entire macronutrient group, maybe that's not great, but even there, like there's individual variation where some people it's like, Nope, can't have this. So, but in general, yeah, when it comes to sport performance, I'm looking more along the lines of what's going to allow you to train the most intensely, what will allow us to accumulate the most high quality training sessions. Stick with that. If, if there's something else it's like, well, you know, this is trending right now, or this is in season right now. And I want to eat this, but, you know, I don't feel great. Like, what are we doing? Mm.
0: So. Well, that, that perfect thing to segue into now. All right. I'm going to just say it like this. What the fuck <laughs> is fat adaptation? Nice. Yes. Um, you know, this like keto world, these you know runners, Mark Sisson talks a lot about it. Uh, fat adapted. All right. So like, A, what is it? B, should runners be doing this? I don't know. Let, let, let's 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 do it. Let's,
1: let's okay. Go there. So, from my understanding, fat adapted is kind of like you're not you're not fully keto, but you're trying to get all of the potential benefits of being keto without having to be keto, so that you can still utilize carbohydrates when you feel like it would be beneficial to you. Um, so we know that uh, if you if you eat certain foods on a regular basis your gut microbiome is like geared and adapted towards towards that thing right so if you eat oh, a lot of if you're a farmer and you only eat what you produce and then you go to McDonald's like you're going to have a bad time right so it's kind of the same thing so if you eat a higher percentage of your fat of your total calories from fat then and you do that consistently over time, you're training your body to utilize more fat as a source of fuel while you're training and competing. This is a potential benefit for endurance sports where uh, the amount of time that it takes to convert, A molecule of fat or a gram of fat, let's say, versus a gram of carbohydrate into usable ATP is less important. Like if you're doing super high intensity, fast, um, power sports, let's say, then trying to utilize fat as a source of fuel, like it just takes too long to convert that fat into usable energy. What you end up with, like, so there's a reason that a gram of fat is nine calories, and a gram of carbohydrate is four calories, and that's because the amount of energy that you can extract from fat is much higher than what you can extract from carbohydrates or even protein. It just takes longer. The system to break it down is essentially aerobic only. So you can utilize carbohydrate aerobically or anaerobically, but the amount of time that you can work at an intensity where you can actually extract that energy is much much shorter so the idea the theory is if i eat more fat and get more fat in my diet then i can utilize more stored fat while i'm training and competing which means now i'm less dependent on fueling during my competition so i think this idea got popularized with like Marathon ultramarathon and triathlons because so many people who were very new to the sport were having a lot of issues with fueling during the bike and during the run or like on the marathon <clears throat> Marathon or ultra marathon you want another water? uh sure why not? let me get that for you my guest. awesome thank you so much in in short, I think that's the whole idea behind being fat adapted is you get to utilize you're less dependent on carbohydrate supplementation during during your training or during your your sport and then you're therefore less at risk of gi issues like nobody wants to stop in the middle of their triathlon to use the porta potty so if you're fat adapted maybe you don't need to fuel at all or maybe you only need to fuel you know half the amount of calories or half the amount of time that you would normally do. So, um, like with, with my triathletes, I like to shoot for about 60 grams of carbohydrate every hour. Like that's not enough to replace what you're losing in an hour, but that's about all the body can handle if it's one source of carbohydrate. So with fat, I don't know that we don't I'm not even sure we have an exact amount of fat that you can utilize per hour, mm-hmm. but it's almost like, well, you know, maybe you don't need to supplement at all.
0: Well, you know, I was thinking about that, and I was reading articles, and honestly, it would take me way too long to cipher through my iPod right, right now because I did a terrible job in terms of my note-taking preparation for today. But I do know that when we're in an aerobic state, and, or at least the, the physiology says, right, we're using these type one muscle fibers, it's aerobic, oxygen, we're in a, a fat burning, we use fat more than we're relying on our uh, uh, glycogen or glucose storage for these like fast twitch kind of things. Mm-hmm. However, you need to be in sustained aerobic activity at a high enough intensity, as I understand it, for a long enough period of time to actually be utilizing all that fat, which brings me to the next question and tell me if I'm right or wrong here because this is my understanding of it, is it still kind of goes glucose, glycogen, fat,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: you know? And in that regard then, we're fat adapted only when we we go through glucose, glycogen, and then utilizing our fat. Mm -hmm. And then I would also imagine that the way you'd be fat adapted is you'd actually have to have a bit more body fat, i.e. sort of a, a CrossFit more body, which in that case, if you're like an endurance athlete, you're probably more fat adapted than you, or you're all as an endurance athletes, especially at a high level, are pretty much fat adapted. But, like you were, like, but, but, as you alluded to, and I'm totally with you, getting carbs, because there is like actual scientific, there's like, they have the equations done, right? Like, you need X amount of carbs at X amount of miles or time mm-hmm. at a certain intensity. Mm-hmm. So, the question is then, do you have enough fat readily available on you or in your system prior to that it's not affecting your digestion, i.e. I'm cramping while I'm running, mm-hmm. to then burn more fat, i.e. fat adapted? You know, I don't know.
1: So <laughs> if you have a higher concentration of fat in your diet, you'll actually increase the amount of circulating free fatty acids in your in your bloodstream. So you'll have more usable fat available and your, like your body will adapt to the fuel sources that you get it. However, the way that the way that you can utilize that fuel is dependent on your intensity, right? So if you are, there's going to be outliers everywhere. But like Dom Diagostino, he's like as keto as you can get, but he can also still deadlift like you know 500 plus pounds. And for him, he's not working in a level where he's accumulating so much training where there's a negative effect on his ability to rep- to reproduce ATP. So um, all that to say, if you're eating more fat, then you'll have more fat available as a source of fuel. It'll be more, there'll be more circulating fat. And also... Even if you're not eating any carbohydrate, your body will convert protein into glucose and store that as glycogen via gluconeogenesis. So even if you're not eating carbs at all and you're, you know, full-blown keto, you still will have a decent amount of stored glucose and glycogen. It just won't be as much as if you're eating a higher, you know, carbohydrate diet. So... Um, it's interesting that you said that it was, I
0: was listening to a podcast the other day, I think it was called like peak performance podcast and somebody was on and they actually talked about how there is no energy benefit to the body from protein is they made some kind of statement like that, where it's like you want to be getting actual carbohydrates or actual qual- good quality enough fats from the, the real food sources, because other than the amino acids and the, and the repair, repair, repairing, reparation, <laughs> repairing of the tissue, um, of the muscle, of the tissue, of the collagen, and the fibers, blah, 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 the amino acids, everything the protein is doing for our body, th- it's not a readily available source of uh, or, or energy, right? Mm-hmm. So even though it gets converted, you know, through the liver, right, mm-hmm. and, and gluconeogenesis happens, yeah, it's not a very reliable source, which is funny. And, and the whole reason I'm even repeating this is because I feel that too many people who want to do a keto diet or dare I say, uh, carnivores or paleo where they're just completely ignoring carbs. Cause a lot of people that I feel would even listen to this or that are in the, uh, avenue of what we're talking about, whether they're like teeter tottering on the, the, uh, the fence of whether or not they're going to run a marathon versus like, Oh, you know, like me, you know, I want to run three, four miles a day. Mm-hmm. Um, say they're low carb. They're like, I got to watch out for the carbs, but then they're eating not enough fat, too much protein almost no carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. Now their blood sugars probably uh, messed up. Uh, Gluconeogenesis is happening at a rate where everything's, you know, dumping at once. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not a desirable, like, happy medium to where you're, like, getting sufficient energy, even though, again, like, your body will use, again, glucose, glycogen, what it has until it starts going into the fat. Mm -hmm. But they don't have readily good quality source of fat
1: available. I mean, does that even make sense, what I'm saying? I think so. Um, Yeah, there's – there's a lot of people who think they're keto, but are are eating too much protein, and they're actually not because amino acids are insulinogenic. So, um, and there's specific ones that will really spike insulin. I'm so.
0: There, I'm glad you said that. That was that was much more well said in that, in that <laughs> word alone because all the time I'm rambling on. As I even said mentioned blood sugar, mm-hmm. but yes, uh, insulinogenic. You know, we love we love insulin. Let's hold on to insulin. Let's, mm-hmm. let's start getting everything into the wrong cells. Let's start, you know, storing more. And that's the thing. Too much protein, too much excess uh, storage.
1: Yeah. So if you're if – you're, especially if you're in a calorie surplus where you're – maybe you're not tracking. You're eating a lot of protein and you're eating some fat, but you're not eating any carbs. And you think you're either at maintenance or in a deficit. But you're eating so much protein that it actually puts you into a calorie surplus – at that point, I think the, what you might see on paper as a quote-unquote very healthy diet will actually lead to down-the-road metabolic syndrome. So, And I can't say that as, as a clinician because I'm not, but um, if you follow the logical outworking of if you're in a calorie surplus, it doesn't matter what the macros are. If you're in a surplus, you're, you're probably going to end up unhealthy you'll be in an inflamed state. It's not going to be great. So if you're in a calorie deficit, I'm not convinced that dumping a ton of insulin is necessarily a a bad thing. Mm -hmm. If you're in a deficit, then your body's going to be like, your body will be much more sensitive to pulling and utilizing energy from wherever it's at. There's going to be certain cases where that. Maybe that's not true with extreme obesity perhaps, but for the general person, like like that guy who did the Twinkie diet, he's eating hydrogenated fat and sugar and lost weight and like all he was doing was pumping insulin right so um, yeah, and that's slightly different because now we're talking about protein, but it's one of those things that, um, this is why I think knowing your caloric need and being able to track is so important because you don't, I don't think that you have to be so strict with what you, what you ingest. Sure. There's a spectrum for sure. 100%. There's a quality spectrum. There's a quantity spectrum. It's best to be on, on the the side of the spectrum that has the highest quality of food, but I think that uh, you can – there's a lot of times where perfection becomes the enemy of what's good. And then you're – if we're all preaching, hey, everybody's got to eat organic. Everybody's got to eat this specific way. You have to eat clean. You've got to do it this way. This is the only way to do it. Like you're setting up a lot of people for failure, and they'd be relatively healthy if we just said, hey – Here's your calorie needs. Here's your range around the calorie, your calorie maintenance. Like live in this range. Mm -hmm. Eat the things you want. You know what's good for you. Like everybody knows what's healthy. You put like a bunch of options in front of somebody and they're like, this is good. That, that's coming out of a box. And inside the box, there's a bag and the food is coming out of that bag. Like, yeah, this is probably better. It just, it just came out of the ground. Right. Like everybody knows kind of what's healthy and what's not. But if you say you have to eat this, you can never have that. Then people are like, I don't know how to do that. I can't do that. <laughs> so. And even athletes, it's the same way. So where the caloric need tends to be way higher. So sometimes you have to eat that in order to hit your calorie needs so that you can wake up the next day and train intensely again.
0: What are, if you had like best guess, why are there some people, and usually I see this in females, they're eating like 700 calories, and I know there's like a past to it, but say for like four months, they're eating like 700 calories a day and they're not losing weight. Like legit, like people's metabolism being so broken. What What do you think? Like, What can we attribute that to?
1: So the body will do whatever it has to do to keep you alive. And first of all, People are really, really bad at tracking. <laughs> I just said it's really important for people to track. In general, people can be off by as much as like 50% of, of what they actually eat versus what they say they eat. Yeah. So that sucks. People are really, really bad at calculating how much they're expending as well. Mm-hmm. So the more you're in a calorie deficit – the more efficient your body will become with those calories to the point where it's possible where you could damage your metabolism so much that if you're only eating that many calories, your body's basically not really, you're not burning anything. You've slowed your metabolic rate down so much that everything that's ingested is like hyper, hyper managed once it gets inside. So I don't think that's as common as people have been told it is because everybody's like, Oh, my hormones are messed. Like I hear this all the time. My hormones are messed up and I tried tracking and I was in a calorie deficit and I only ate 1500 calories a day. And I know my basal metabolic rate is 1800. So Plus activity if I'm in fifteen hundred calorie if I'm only eating fifteen hundred calories, like I'm probably in a thousand calorie deficit. And I did that for you know, for three weeks and I didn't lose any weight. I'm like, Yeah, doubt it. But you can't say that. Like <laughs> no, you weren't. You weren't doing any of that. But it's it is possible for your metabolic rate to slow the longer you're in a calorie deficit because the body will not the body doesn't want you to starve. So What it will do is it will shut down a ton of non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So, like, Lane Norton talks about this when he was prepping for a show where he's he's deliberately in as significant of a calorie deficit as possible so that he's burning fat and losing fat mass, but not so much that he's also losing lean tissue mass. But, like you're talking about a serious calorie deficit he's still training to maintain muscle, you know mass, mm-hmm. and he would just like be watching t v and he could like feel himself blinking very slowly, and like I don't want to watch this, but the remote's over there. guess I'm watching this like your your motivations will change your your you won't fidget anymore. Like if you're not eating, then your body's like, okay, well, you know, no tapping your foot when you're sitting down or no like fidgeting, like you're just not going to expend calories that the body doesn't have available. So, um, that's, this is a little off topic, but this is one reason why knowing your maintenance level range is important because your maintenance level, according to your calorie Calculation might be two thousand, but if you're eating more than that, now you're giving your body a bigger budget for non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So you'll probably fidget more. You'll probably like your body's going to maintain your weight because it's like, okay, well, we're a little over budget. All right, we don't have to be as frugal with these calories. Spend them wherever, right? So, but if like if you only have a budget of let's say $7 we'll try to like make it similar to you know um uh, 700 calories like if you've got a budget for $7 and you've got a you've got to go to the grocery store and purchase everything you need for a meal like you're going to take your time and you're going to pick out things so that you you feel full versus like if you have you know if you've got $30 like pff- and buy a bunch of stuff that, like, eh, that even that wasn't even that good. I'm not. I'm gonna throw that away. Like, <laughs> I still have all this food. You know what I mean? So, the body will become super efficient with whatever you give it. The more you're in a calorie deficit. So, yeah. It, unfortunately, it becomes a race to the bottom where it's like we're not gonna lose any weight because we've got to hold on to this. If we're only getting 700 calories, then we're we're just we're not giving anything up i are just going to hold on to all of it, so. Now, for the people that are listening, and
0: a question that just popped into my head, I want to hear it from you. If you only had one choice, weightlifting or cardio, and when it comes to fat loss, what do you say?
1: Weightlifting, 100%.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and that's what that's what the research says. Yeah. And you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, you know, what, what's the word we're looking for? That for every um, X amount of muscle that we actually increase. We continue to burn more fat, sure. even at rest. Yep. Um, the uh, lean mass, you know, effect of what you're trying to do, because everybody thinks they want to lose weight, and this is something I said, and I'm sure you'll back me here, is we're not trying to lose weight. We're trying to keep lean mass, decrease body fat.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. A way to do it. Yeah. Yeah, you're trying to improve body comp, like by losing fat mass. That's the way to do it. So, yeah, what it's difficult. Because when people look at, again, like the Olympic trials are on right now, you look at all these like 1500, 5K, 10K steeplechase runners, like they are super lean. You can see every single muscle fiber. Like they're so sinewy. All they do is run. That's all they do. But they have to run in order to continue looking like that. Like most of these people are doing 70 80 90 100 plus miles a week. All like running is their job. Cardio is their job and it's not a good long-term solution. It it upregulates your hunger hormones. It increases production of cortisol which will actually reduce lean tissue mass. Um it's not a, it's not a good long-term solution whereas weight training, resistance training, your you can still produce a calorie deficit. Both of them are useful for producing a calorie deficit. If your goal is to lose fat or to lose weight, you have to be in a calorie deficit. You can do that by inc- by doing just one or the other, just strength training or just cardio, or you can combine the two. Mm-hmm. For a lot of people, that's useful to create a little bit more of a calorie deficit with some low-intensity cardio. Um, but if I if I'm working with someone who just wants to alter body comp, why would we make you more hungry by having you do cardio if I'm trying to put you in a calorie deficit but make you not feel starving all the time? So strength and conditioning or strength training, in my opinion, is it's, it's the best long-term solution. Although, like, we're, we're just looking at body comp changes. We're not looking at, like, cardio-respiratory health and, lo- and longevity. Mm-hmm. Like, you want to live a long time? You need to do cardio. You want to look better, strength and conditioning, strength training. So Condition. it's, yeah. Yep. Do both. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hear you. A and little then, bit of both. And it's
0: funny, like when I prepared the outline for this, I know, so we talked about it then. That means very briefly, I think that a lot of people l- kind of gravitate towards running because they look at it as something that's easy. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, like, is that? Why? Or is it still the old homage of like get on the cardio you know wagon from the 80s and throw on the spandex, and yeah. you know that's what's going to keep you thin? Uh, I would hope that they do it because it's easy. Like for me, I like running because I love the way I feel while I'm in the midst of the run. Mm-hmm. And for me, I look at it as less of a chance that I'm going to pop my bicep tendon or throw my back out doing a deadlift. Sure. Even though I can tell you all the same, I can throw my back out picking something up after my run, assuming I'm not taking care of myself. Yeah. But I mean, do you think that people are running because they think it's easy? Do you think they're, they're running because it's like such a, like a cultural thing? And and then by that, I mean, doing themselves a disservice in terms of body comp. Um,
1: yeah, that's a tough one. So like the barrier to entry, like anyone just about anyone can run. Yeah. Like if you can Go buy some running shoes, like you can hit a running trail or you can hit the roads or you can go to a park, like just about anybody can get out and do it. And the assumption is if you can walk, like no one has to teach you how to walk. Like you're, you learn how to walk when you're a kid, but nobody's like showing you how to do it. Right. They're not saying, Hey, put your foot right here and then do this. And then like, it's the same with the idea is it's the same with running. Like running, in my opinion, is a very complex skill, the same way that squatting Deadlifting or Olympic lifts are complex skills. Like they're very, like you can adjust and manage technique and you can get different outcomes. So, but in general, the barrier to entry for running is super low and just about anyone can do it. And I love that. And that's great. And like, especially here in Dallas, like the way we met was via run on, right? And so every Wednesday night they do their social run and everybody shows up. And, you know, like at least people are out doing some exercise. Yep. In an ideal world, everyone would do, you know, strength training and some cardio. Are you hurting your potential summer bod by running? Probably not, but, <laughs> 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 but you're going to get more bang for your buck from – from the strength training. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's viewed as easy because just about anybody can do it and you can join a running club. And I think like you can't gloss over like the psychological benefit of, of walking or jogging or running. Like it's huge, especially during a pandemic. Like I think people getting out and doing some running has been huge for people's mental health. And, um, like, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be doing the mileage I'm doing now if I hadn't started running, you know, with the run on group a year ago and then getting some runs in on the weekends every once in a while with Elliot and mm-hmm. then um you know also coaching, you know, my my high school homeschool team as well. But um yeah, like it's it's great that just about anybody can do it. I think it's I think it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, it's a net positive for health and body comp probably. Understood. <laughs> I got you man.
0: I know and you know what if you're going to do running or especially if you think like I think or you do like I do, you know, just make sure you're doing some calisthenics. Get your push-ups in. Try to do some pull-ups
1: if you can. Yeah. Right. Another really really easy way to ensure that you're you're doing your body comp a favor is don't just do steady state all the time. Like, yeah, that zone one and two, like, that's really important. But if you want to increase muscle mass, like, do some sprints. And, like, that's relative. So you don't have to go to a track and do 10 times 100 meters with walking recovery. Like, maybe you're just going to throw some some strides into the middle of your run where you're just changing your pace. Like, doing things like that where you're recruiting more uh bigger motor units or like fast switch motor unit fibers like that's going to help that's going to be really beneficial for body comp too so i know a lot of people who uh to prep for the summer to get their beach bod ready like they shift away from like steady state cardio and they just do some high intensity cardio and like they get great results from that so Throw some speed in there.
0: Now, um, did I hear you were telling me one time that somebody brings you donuts every Friday morning? Like a particular client brings you donuts every Friday? hmm Yeah.
1: I had two this morning. <laughs> <laughs> what's, your, what's your favorite donut? Oh, so shout out to Andy. Uh, hooking me up with donuts every Friday. Uh, so quick story about that. Andy broke his neck uh, in Spain doing some bike riding. And, uh, when he came back, you know, he's in a neck brace and, and couldn't come to me, obviously like he can't drive. He was very, very limited on what he was allowed to do for about 12 weeks. So as soon as he was cleared, I would go, you know, I'd go to his house and we started working on arch mechanics and balance and doing the things that he would You know, that the doctor said, hey, yeah, that's fine. You can do that. Um, We weren't allowed to squat. We weren't allowed to hip hinge. So we were doing things that we could do. And uh, I would drive past this donut shop and twice a week I'd go, you know, to his house. And so at least once a week I'd be like, pick up some donuts. And so I'd take him to his house just to, you know, just to try to make it fun. You know, a little more fun because there there were a lot of times where that was just – it was brutal. Like he, he was in pain all the time and, you know, was stuck in a neck brace. And, um, I think that helped. And then as soon as he was cleared to, you know, to be out of the neck brace and to come back to, to my office, like every Friday he would just show up. So my favorite donut. Oh man. Okay. So is it, uh, what's the place on the east side of white rock Lake? I can't remember the name of the donut shop now. I feel awful. Anyway, they've got a donut called the Canadian Healthcare. And it's a maple long john with a strip of bacon on it and then maple syrup on top. And that's like maple glazed donuts are, in my opinion, one of the best. And then Andy sometimes brings me a cronut, which is a croissant donut Mm. hybrid. Mm. And there's usually like strawberries and whipped cream on it. It's amazing. <laughs> have,
0: uh, have you been – because I'm going to get ice cream tonight. That's nice. All, I'm, I'm getting ideas now. Uh, what about – oh, man, Sweet Days. Sweet Days over there in Richardson. Have you been? mm Really?
1: I've not, but I'm going to do it
0: now. Yeah. Tell me about it. Well, they've got – it's like a birthday cake one. They've got like a Snickerdoodle – no, Reese's Peanut Butter Cup one. Mm. And then they have the – it's Oreo topping but I wasn't sure well the, and they'll heat them up right there and it's like small batch so it's so it's not like um you know Dunkin Donuts yeah yeah like it's until it runs out but they they, they have very unique flavors and the toppings are very reliably like if you wanted birthday cake or some kind of frosting like that's like around the glaze you know what nice. I mean okay. um the Bavarian cream is where I was going with that I don't think they okay. have a Bavarian cream but like that's like you know because I used to be like before I was a keto guy And definitely within the last couple of months, like I might have alluded to with you in the podcast, or I certainly was telling Kat on the last podcast that we did a month ago here, I mean, you know, my eating's out of control right now. Mm. So yeah, donuts, (laughs) freaking cake, you know, ice cream (laughs) over at uh, Baltolini's Gelato, if I'm even Mm. saying that right. And now I know I have to go to Sweet Firefly, Sweet Firefly, you know what I'm talking about? Mm -mm. Also in Richardson. So Yeah, man, I got my work cut out for me. Same. But the donuts, like, yeah, dude, it's like all I wanted. And and that's the whole reason this even started was last Sunday and Monday, I did like three miles back to back. I felt great. Everything was going good. That second night, I was like, I am starving because i had (laughs) been in a caloric deficit for like two weeks prior. Uh It was like on purpose, eating clean. I had just gotten over some like ridiculous parasite. Something got a hold of me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Antibiotics took care of it. Thank God for Western medicine in that regard. Yes, sir. And I was, like, feeling like myself, and everything was going good. By that second night, I probably ate, like, you know, 2,000 to 3,000 calories alone. By the next day, I was like, I'm all screwed up again. The blood sugar fluctuations. <laughs> and it's like – and then it was like, am I going to go run today? Am I going to – oh, no. I'm not going to go run today. Access now. Yeah. And now here we are. It's like all I want is ice cream, donuts, <laughs> my body to recover.
1: i got to go activate my glutes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Going to do some planking. Going to do some tracking. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a lot of work, man, but – Start incrementally. Just you know, put the pieces together slowly, and you know, baby steps.
0: Yeah. That's a, that's <laughs> like lessons in life. Baby steps. Start slow. Keep a journal. Mm-hmm. Have an accountability partner. Mm-hmm. Man, we can uh, like go on and on with that. Now I gotta. Make, I'm gonna quickly peek at my sheet and make sure. Look, 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 Speaking look, of, of
1: sure. accountability, uh, shameless plug. If you need accountability, you can pay me. And I will keep you accountable. <laughs> I provide that as a nutrition coaching service. Yes. So. <laughs> Just saying. No.
0: Well, uh, Kevin, A, where can people
1: find you on social media? Keep tabs. Reach so, you. Um Instagram, Twitter, at Athlete Factors. Two words. Uh, or is it one word? It's all smushed together on okay. online. But um, Or you can go to athletefactors.com. Or you can search Athlete Factors on Facebook, um, basically everywhere. Um, Yeah.
0: I mean, and and honestly, like I say this again for the people, if you didn't listen to or or if this podcast was too long and you skipped around or you're watching a clip, this guy's podcast, Athlete Factors podcast is phenomenal because the the guests he has, it's such a great variety. They're experts in the field. There's golden nuggets galore. You guys got to tune in um i really appreciate that man yeah no really dude i really like when i i knew you kind of like had the podcast and then it was it was the pop the, the, that's right like the, the pollen one and i've already forgotten i'm sorry his name mm-hmm. we talked about allergies mm-hmm. that was the one that like i was like wow this is some just amazing content and then i went back and started listening to some more and i listened to some more and i listened to some more and in the last few weeks i've probably listened to about six year podcasts. awesome i i really appreciate it um Man, I was like, I can't even believe an hour and 47 minutes has gone on now because there's like I, – I, it's like I want to talk about more, but now I feel like I'd be going back, so we'll just have to like do it again. Hey, let's well, do it again. Whether it's on your channel or mine. Sure. Both. And uh, yeah, man, I was like, well, you I know where to find you. Um, I hope you enjoyed the Toco Chico. I mean, for doing 30-some miles a week, I mean, you, you needed like six of those <laughs> You got to be hydrated,
1: man. Yeah. It's warm out now in Texas, so. Incredible. Isn't not it? Isn't it just like – <laughs>
0: Is it just me? And I've lived here probably like a year less than you, or something. But is it just disgustingly hot right now for Texas? It seems like it's more humid.
1: I don't know. It
0: it always feels awful during the summer. <laughs> that that or now that I'm out of nutritional ketosis, I'm not cold. Mm. I'm not cold all the time. So I'm like everyone else who just hates the Texas heat. <laughs> I used to be like, it doesn't bother me. I like it when it's 100 degrees. That's
1: hilarious. Uh, I was also like 4% body fat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's exaggeration. Yeah, you're going to be cold. He's six. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that and you weren't eating too much protein because that would increase uh, digestive thermogenesis. So, yes. yeah, the meat sweats, it's a real thing. Damn. So. Don't hey, go, don't go over on the meat. See, this is where I have to say,
0: that's where like Paul Saladino and the Carnivore Code, you ruined me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real thing, and I still love you. He's a genius. I love listening to him. He's right about almost everything. But good God, when I started replacing those uh, those plant-based type of ideals and, and getting still all the right fats mm-hmm. with more like animal-based fat, oh yeah, no, it's 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 been a, it's been a hard t- struggle for me. I really I, I I I did it all the wrong way, and I'm suffering the consequences. Texas sweats.
1: That's it, man. That's
0: rough here. The protein sweats. Protein sweats. Now i got to edit that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, (laughs) wow. Well, Well, guys, uh, thanks for tuning in for the last two hours. Um, Everything that you need to know about Kevin, his books, uh, podcast notes will be in the description below on YouTube. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, um, everything and anything you ever need here on the Dr. Perlman TV uh, channel. Oh, no. Until next time, thank you all for tuning in. (laughs) It's me and Matthew Fox saying, until next time.
1: Adios. (laughs)
0: All right, everyone, thanks for tuning in today. You'd be doing us a great